0: Brothers and sisters, let's turn in our Bibles again to the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and let's, of course, return to chapter 3. If you're just joining us, we've been looking very, very closely at the true account of the entrance of sin into our world. It's the work of a serpent, its influence upon a woman influence upon a man, as will become clear, each guilty of their own sin that's led to all the other sin of this world. I'll begin reading at verse 8. I'll read through verse 13, Genesis chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Seek the Lord's blessing on his preaching, on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father. For all the dreadfulness of what is recorded for us in this portion of your word, we pray that it might be for us a means of grace, drawing us to true confession of our sin, such that we might receive from you what you offer to us in Christ Jesus. We've already celebrated this morning, both in word and sacrament, cleansing of all our sins. So bless your word to our hearing. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So the time has come for Adam and Eve to give an accounting to God for what they've done. He's come seeking them, and they've briefly resorted to hiding from them. But now it's time for them to confess their sins. To plead for forgiveness, in fact, from the one that they've wronged. It's time for them to cast themselves, and for that matter, all their future and all their posterity before the Lord, seeking his mercy. That's what time it is in our story. You know the time for that comes and goes, and it doesn't happen. Why not? Well, brothers and sisters, I just might as well tell you at the outset ...of our reflections together this morning. It doesn't happen because there's not a shred of evidence in our account... ...that these brand new sinners are also repentant sinners. Now there's a confession of sin of sorts in our text. We're going to be looking at it, but it's the confession of those who've been caught in their sin and they have no choice but to confess and they're setting out to make the best of a bad situation, as we say. We have a study before us of what I've called confessions of the impenitent. And it's something the world is full of. You're well aware. Those who have... A tendency to use their confession, so-called, more to excuse themselves than to accuse themselves of wrongdoing. And so, uh, we're going to be pretty hard on our first parents this morning. We're actually, in doing so, going to be pretty hard on ourselves as well. Because we're going to see the tendency of our own hearts in what they say and do. Uh, The good is that we'll learn along the way, there is a kind of confession the Lord delights in and grants full forgiveness to. So let's look at three features this morning of the confession of the impenitent. Number one, uh, confessions of the impenitent are reluctant and offered up only under Let me remind you that God has called out to Adam in verse 10, or sorry, in verse 9, and in verse 10, Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And that's an honest enough answer to God. We'll grant him that. I hope you can also see how reluctant he is at the same time to declare all that's true. He knows that he's become aware of his nakedness the moment he ate the forbidden fruit. That's how he came to know that he was naked. He knows that that eating the forbidden fruit was rebellion against God. He certainly knows that this fear that he has of God's presence in the garden has everything to do with what he's just done. He knows all of that, but... He knows more than he's confessing when given the opportunity to do so. And that's made painfully clear in the way that Jesus, we consider this to be Jesus in the garden, goes on to ask those follow-up questions. He says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? It's as if God is saying there, Adam, you know how this sense of nakedness has come about. Why aren't you mentioning that? When God asks Adam, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? It's as if God is saying, Adam, why don't you just tell me what you've done? Children, I think even you know, maybe in some ways, especially you know, what Adam should have said at just this moment. Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Kids, you know that a simple yes would have been a step in the right direction. Right, kids? Just that much would have been uh, going in the right direction. Yes. Or as perhaps your dad and mom teach you to say in your home, yes, sir. Even better. Adam should have said Father, I've done what you said not to do. Best of all, Adam could have said, Father, I have sinned. Have mercy. That's what Adam should have said at this point in the conversation. But faced with the reality that God knows his sin and it's utterly futile to deny it, here's what Adam actually says. Verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me through the tree and I ate. Did you catch the confession of sin in that? Uh, In your English Bibles, it's the last two words. I ate. This is what is sometimes called a confession under duress. Those who are not themselves taking the initiative to bring their confession to the one they've wronged the ones who are confessing only because their sin's been found out, the confession that concludes only so much as is absolutely necessary to admit to, a confession that, in other words, has to be dragged out of the offender, who's not feeling guilt, or rather not feeling remorse, just feeling some level of guilt and shame. You see that kind of confession all the time in public figures, don't you? There's an accusation of wrongdoing. Initially, they deny and they seek to hide it. Eventually, the evidence is there. They partially acknowledge it. And then, by the time they get to be the butt of jokes on Saturday night television programs, they come out with full confession. This is what I'm calling reluctant confessions offered only under We see it all around us in our society, but before I go on, let's just acknowledge that these are rather frequent in our homes and churches also, aren't they? Confessions of sin that are forthcoming only when there's nothing else to be done about it. Children, you know about this in your homes, don't you? You know what it's like to confess sin only because your mom or your dad is asking you question after question after question. You know what they're talking about. You don't want to talk about it, right, children? You know this experience very well. A true confession, even that first question says, I did it. I disobeyed. I'm sorry, mommy. Right, children? Often it looks very different in our homes. Those of you who are married know that these are not the kinds of confessions that speed us towards a reconciled state in our relationships with our spouses. You're in the wrong. Your spouse has got you dead to rights. And he or she wrings that confession out of you. But it's only reluctant, only under duress. And neither of you have a sense that there's real reconciliation. Pastors and elders know there's a difference between someone saying, yes, I did. And someone saying, I'm truly sorry for what I did. The brothers and sisters, we're seeing in Adam and Eve something written in vivid color in Genesis 3. Something we know very well, don't we? Let's consider a second thing about the confessions of the impenitent. Uh, they are self-excusing and blame-shifting. That's what our text spends the most time on. We'll spend a little bit more time on this as well. This is the most infamous part of the interview between our Lord and sinful Adam and Eve. And this is the most incriminating evidence that these are confessions of sin by impenitent sinners. Just when they should be acknowledging their own guilt, they're blaming someone else. You might say their confessions have a but in them. I did what you told me not to do, but are seeking to lessening their guilt by pointing to what someone else has done. There's three people who get blamed taking Adam and Eve's words together. The first is what Adam does in verse 12. He's the first of countless sinners who after him blame other people in their lives for their sins. Adam points to Eve and says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me through the tree And I ate. It's painful, isn't it, to hear Adam speak of his wife that way. The woman whom you gave to be with me. Do you think that already before this little interview between God and Adam and Eve, there had already set in some of the resentment and bitterness in Adam's heart towards his wife as a result of what had happened? You can well imagine that their relationship would have pretty quickly gone from sweet To sour. This probably wasn't the first time that Adam thought this way about Eve and thought of her role in his sin. But whatever had passed between the two of them, Adam and Eve, his blame shifting is pretty fast and pretty unabashed, as if he'd already convinced himself of it. This wouldn't have happened without her. Now, in terms of the actual words Adam speaks... It's all true. can Look at it again. What he says is true in verse 12. Eve actually did play the role that he says that she did. She had not been his helper in that moment. She'd become a stumbling block to him. So why are we being so hard on Adam just here? Well, folks, you know, in light of all that the rest of the scripture does, in identifying Adam as 100% responsible for his sin of eating the forbidden fruit, we know what he's doing. Yes, his wife was a bad example to him. Yes, his wife was a bad influence on him, but nothing that she did was the cause of his sinful deed. This is the stubborn teaching, the stubborn truth, taught in the Bible, no one has the power to make you choose to disobey God. You have a will that does exactly what you want to do. And when you do what is wrong, it's because your heart in evil shows desire what was wrong. James puts it this way, each person is tempted when he is lured, enticed by his own desire. Adam could have, as he was presented with the fruit from his wife, he could have said to Eve, like God said to Eve, what is this you have done? No, I'll never do this. God has forbidden this. But his desire, born in his heart, was to do what was wrong. So everything Adam says about Eve is true, but it's also irrelevant. And you know, this excuse by Adam has borne a whole ideology, we could say, of blame-shifting in the world we live in. Uh, We all recognize the truth People in our lives have a powerful influence on us, often for ill. That truth can be put, just like Adam put it to work, in service of a lie. Because of this, we're not fully responsible for our sin. I'm a defense attorney of a criminal convicted or found in the act of his crime. And I know there's no disputing before the Jury, the facts of the case, well, I'm going to set myself to uh, persuading those men and women in the jury. There were circumstances that you ought to take into consideration, influences, societal pressures, all the rest. I'll seek to persuade that jury that he's not as responsible for this act as it might otherwise look because there were other evil people in his life. Professional counseling more and more adopts this whole ideology of blame-shifting. I hear again and again from those who have sought professional counseling in various ways that part of that therapy is to lead you on a a little journey of discovery, to go back in your life, to recognize that so-and-so did something really despicable, So-and-so did something really despicable. And all will presume, for the sake of discussion, truth about what other people have done. All leading to a lessening of a sense of personal responsibility for our own sin. At its worst, this culture of blame-shifting that we see everywhere can actually turn it upside down so that the criminal becomes the victim. Do you hear the faintest beginnings of that in what Adam says? The woman, she gave me to eat. See, God, what was done to me? Brothers and sisters, listen for this tendency in yourself to blame the people around you for your own sins. Listen for the but in your confession. I'm sorry, but I got so mad when you said such and such. (laughs) Ah, true enough, true enough what he said, what she said what he did, what she did at its place in your sin. But no one got behind the steering wheel of your heart and drove you to do what you did. Adam is the first of countless sinners to blame people in their lives for their own sin. The second person that's blamed But Adam and Eve say together, it's by Eve, and of course, it's the devil. So she's the first of countless sinners to blame the devil for their own sin. By the way, it ought to be surprising to you that the Lord doesn't immediately deal severely with Adam at the moment he tries to shift blame to his wife. But we've already seen how gracious and patient God is as he comes upon Adam and Eve in their sin. He's saddened, no doubt, by what Adam has said. But there's grace not only in what he says, there's also grace in what he doesn't say at this moment. So he turns in verse 13 to Eve, and his question is recorded for us. In verse 13 is, what is this that you have done? Not a question for information, as we've already seen. It's an invitation to Eve to confess Sin. Well, in this case, Eve follows Adam's example. And she too points to someone else to blame for her sin. She says famously, the serpent deceived me. I ate. Now, folks, I could say everything I just said about Adam's excuse, now about Eve's excuse. She speaks what's true. It's also what's irrelevant. She is responsible for what she did, no matter how much Satan was an influence on her life. But doesn't Eve's blame-shifting have at least a little bit more plausibility to us? After all, as she confesses, she was deceived by the devil. Aren't we absolved of our guilt for our actions when we're acting on false pretenses if we do something? As those who are thinking something that's not true, can't we at least then say... Devil made me do it. Just a couple of reminders for you to see why that's not the case. What I said about other human beings—no other human being is able to make you choose what is evil—can also be said of the devil. Some of us have been having some foyer discussion in this series recently about Satan's ability. To communicate with us. He's a spirit being. We are body, soul beings. He doesn't appear in our lives any longer in the form of a serpent. So in order for him to tempt us, must not he be able to communicate his spirit with our spirit directly? Well, I'm saying yes in those ongoing discussions. He has the ability that any spirit being does to communicate with our spirits apart from some physical manifestation, but don't let that, if I'm able to persuade you of that, let you exaggerate his power and his influence as he communicates directly to our hearts. Everything I said a moment ago about people is true of Satan. As real as he is, as powerful as his influence, he doesn't have the ability To take control of your heart. To commandeer your will. To make you do what he tempts you to do. Folks, that's why he relies so much on deception. If he could just take control of your will, he wouldn't need to deceive you. In fact, he needs to deceive because he doesn't have the ability to take control of your heart. What that means is that when we're deceived by the devil, we're responsible 100% for believing his lie. So God had revealed to Adam and Eve the truth about what eating the forbidden fruit would bring. Under Satan's influence, Eve turns from that truth and believes his lie. That deception of Eve is rooted in her decision about who she will believe. Do you see that? What that means is that we're responsible for believing the lies of Satan. God has told us what is true. Satan has sought to contradict what is true. Eve, who has her own judgment to come, as we will see, is clearly held accountable by God. Or believing a lie. Can I just point out here that's why it's so vitally important for us to make the Word of God our study and our meditation, to continually be uh, training our minds in the knowledge of the truth because we're responsible to listen to God and not to listen to the lies of the devil. Eve's receiving her own judgment because she believes the serpent. I see in Eve's excuse another trend and it's in the church, not just in the world, to absolve sinners of responsibility for their sin if they didn't know better. If they were never told. If they were misinformed, Think about it. You've probably heard these kinds of things as I have over the years. True, sad, but true statements like I never had a good role model in a father or a mother. I wish someone had just set me down and told me about X or Y or Z, but no one ever did. My church growing up Failed me, they let me down, didn't teach me some of the most important things of the Christian life. These are unbearably sad testimonies. They're so often true statements. Brothers and sisters, they're worthy of lament. But let's be careful. None of them are worthy excuses for our own sins and failures. Some Christians devote a considerable amount of time to piecing together the factors in other people's lives and the devil's influence in their own misconceptions as a result of it all that justify who they are, what they do, Present time, as if, given what I've experienced, my sin is inevitable. Isn't that what Eve is saying? I was deceived by the serpent. She's still held responsible because she does what she knew to be wrong. Not even the devil can take the blame. what we freely choose to do. I said a moment ago that there are three people blamed in Adam and Eve's testimony to God. Eve is blamed. The serpent is blamed. Did you catch the third person who receives blame? Go back to what Adam says in verse 12. Adam's the first of countless sinners To blame God himself for their own sin. Look for it in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me through the tree and I ate. Why does Adam bring that up? What is the effect of his speaking of the woman that he's blaming for his sin as the one given by God? Why would he reference that here as he's forced to give an account for his own disobedience? Well, you know why. Brothers and sisters, his heart is going in the direction that actually every sinner's heart goes, however outrageous it may seem to be. Adam is saying, if God had done things differently... It wouldn't have turned out this way. I mean, there was a time when I didn't have this companion in the garden. And if it had continued that way, obviously I wouldn't have eaten of the fruit. God, you're the one who made this woman and gave her to me. Look at what she did. Adam is saying, the woman gave me the fruit. But God, you gave me the woman. Maybe the most chilling moment in the whole of the chapter. Adam is turning the blame for his sin back upon God himself. By the way, there's a long exegetical tradition in the church that stands back in horror at this moment. St. Augustine writes, Nothing is as characteristic of sinners as to want to attribute to God everything for which they are accused. Calvin writes, as if conscious of no evil, he puts his wife as the guilty party in his place and, not content with this, he brings at the same time an accusation against God, objecting that the wife who brought ruin upon him had been given by God. Matthew Henry just says it, he insinuates that God was an accessory to his sin. This sounds outrageous to us, doesn't it? But is it really that's so very foreign to our hearts? Walk with me down this line of thought. Given our tendency to blame our circumstances, yes, the people in our lives, but also just our circumstances for our own sins, isn't it but a small step to resent the one who we know is the author of all that happens? Who is the one in control of all our circumstances? Kids, you think it would be so much easier to be a good brother or sister if you didn't have such a lousy brother or sister. Right? God, why have you given me that brother or sister? You think, it wouldn't be so hard. I wouldn't fail so miserably in in purity. If I were already married, or if I were happily married, I wouldn't get angry if I didn't have to live with those people at the workplace. And as good Calvinists, What do you do? Well, your heart reflects in the fact that God's in control of everything. He could do something about those circumstances, couldn't he? He's the one who's ordained. All that comes to pass. So don't we have our own ways of thinking, if not saying, it's the woman you gave to me. I actually do wonder if we're Perhaps especially vulnerable to this temptation to blame God as those who are in a tradition that emphasizes, rightly so, the sovereignty of God. And could this not be our thinking that the more we exalt the sovereignty of God, the the less we'll have a sense of our own responsibility as if they're inversely related That's not the way the Bible presents the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He's 100% sovereign. You and I are 100% responsible. There's mystery in that. But never pit one against the other. I think that's why James finds it necessary to say, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I'm not saying so many words. God is tempting me, but my fellow Presbyterians, we're subtle enough as sinners to take a precious doctrine of the sovereignty of God and cover our sins with it. It occurred to me, talking with one of you this week, just about how hearts could do that after making a pledge of obedience on a Sunday morning where we say, going through the Ten Commandments, by your grace we will do this, by your grace we will do that. And then the day and the week comes and we break our promise. What a temptation to say, God, you must not have given me the grace. I think you share some of the blame, God, for my sin. Adam is... Showing us how we're to guard our hearts against what is ultimately a blasphemous notion. That you wouldn't be a sinner or wouldn't be the sinner that you are if God had done some things differently. Confessions of the impenitent are number one, reluctant and offered only under duress. Confessions of the impenitent penitent are self-excusing and blame shifting and number 3 confessions of the impenitent are unconcerned about the ultimate issue this may be the most revealing thing about the state of Adam and Eve's heart They're afraid of the one that they have displeased. There's a kind of fear in that. That's a tragedy. Fear of a displeased God. But they show no sign of being afraid of losing fellowship with him. That's the ultimate issue. And they seem unconcerned. Can I just, by way of contrast, hopefully not stealing too much of Brother Gibson's preaching the next Few weeks. You remember that moment in King David's true prayer of repentance, Psalm 51? He says to his father that he's displeased, He says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is praying against the very thing that's going to happen to Adam and Eve. They're going to be cast out of God's presence there in the garden. But Adam and Eve have no concern about this. It's that it registers in their words. All they do is point fingers at each other. It did occur to me with sudden sinking feeling at some point looking at this passage. The lack of anything hopeful in Genesis 3 about where Adam and Eve's hearts are in response to their own sin, raises the question, did they ever truly repent? Folks, if they did, we have no clear record of it in themselves. We do have some hopeful signs that God's not finished with them. We'll see those before the chapter's over. But we never see in Adam and Eve fruit of full, unmistakable, genuine repentance. And we're finding them here in the immediate aftermath of their sin utterly impenitent. And you know why. It's because they're dead. That's what God said would happen to them. If they ate of the forbidden fruit, that day they would die. Before their death, long before their death became a physical reality, it was immediately a spiritual reality, and we're seeing that in them. This death entails a loss of life-giving fellowship with God. And get this, it entails a loss of any desire for that fellowship with God. There, as the apostle would say much later, dead in their trespasses and sins. They're incapable of being concerned about the loss of God's presence. They're only capable, like all dead men around us, worrying about the various consequences, temporal, immediate, of their sin. We're seeing Adam and Eve, full fruit of their fall, they're lost. They stand before the Lord in need of saving grace, the kind that not only pardons their sin, but actually first gives them a desire truly to seek So the great lesson of this portion of our text is that so-called confessions of the impenitent, they're the only kind there are apart from God's saving work. What Adam and Eve are doing in this text is what everyone does by nature. They stand as Symbols as types of what every sinner is like when they're dead in their sin. I just had a, a moment of curiosity in my study. I on a whim I did a Bible search of the expression, I have sinned. What kind of people say that in the Bible? I found the majority of people that said that in the Bible are confessors who are impenitent. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, says, I have sinned. Balaam, false prophet for hire of King Moab, says, I have sinned. Achan, the man who stoned to death in the days of Joshua, says, I have sinned. King Saul says, I have sinned. Judas, Iscariot, says, I have sinned. None of them. Genuine remorse. Remorse. Friends, no wonder Adam and Eve's confession of sin falls so far short. It's because true confession and the repentance that drives true confession, it's a gift of God. So that if a confession like Adam's is the only kind that can be found in your life, then you need to be saved. Just like Adam needed to be saved. You need this gift of a contrite heart. This gift of an awakened desire to have restored what sin has cost you. The fellowship of God. And God begins his work of salvation by giving sinners that desire so what would that true confession look like? Of a true penitent, what would it look like? The kind that scripture says will, God will always respond to with full forgiveness. Well, that's what I want to leave you with. And in a certain sense, we've been talking about it all morning. Because it is at, the, at every point the opposite of what we see in our first parent. True confessors are sincere and wholehearted in naming their sin to the Lord. They're sad to do it, but they're not reluctant to do it. There's a certain eagerness to accuse themselves. Certain earnestness to be the one coming to him. Saying, Father, I have sinned. True confessors accept full responsibility for their sin. They don't seek to blame anyone else. They confess their sin, you might say, like they're the only sinner on the planet. As if there was no Satan, no husband, no wife, no corrupting society. True confessors seek God's face in their confession of sin. With this all-consuming ambition. Be reconciled to him. May have to bear consequences of our sins in this life. But as long as the one we've offended remains our father, our friend, as long as he doesn't cast us out of our out of his presence, we're content. Some of our church fathers. I'm actually quite convinced that had Adam and Eve truly confessed, then everything would have been different from this point forward. They wouldn't have fallen under the curses that we're about to study. They wouldn't have been banished from the garden. Things would have been very different. I think they're being a little speculative. This is what we can be certain about. John 1.8 8 says, if we say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That's what we're seeing in Adam and Eve. But he also says, we can be certain of this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'll close with a promise of God in the gospel. If you are willing to come out of hiding, to come to God, to fall at His feet, to freely acknowledge your sin, and to plead His forgiveness, you will not be cast out of His presence. You'll be restored to His favor. You'll be forgiven for your sins because our God will not despise the broken and contrite spirit. Amen. Amen.. Let's go to this God with contrition as we pray. Our Father before we confess our sins, Each Sunday morning, perhaps we should first confess our confessions to themselves, be so often sinful. We have acknowledged our sin to each other, to those we've wronged, to you so very partially, reluctantly. Burying such confessions on our true statements of other sins. And only because we were caught, we feel guilt. Not enough true heart contrition. We confess, O oh Lord, we like Adam and Eve have sinned in our confessions. And so we ask you, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us for our sins, and forgive us for the confessions of those sins. We've only compounded our guilt. And lead us, we pray, because we have the Spirit, because you've given us hearts that are broken and contrite. And because you continue to work in us this sense of desperate desire, that you would renew a right spirit in us, that you would not cast us from your presence. Give us, we pray, all that you offer us in the gospel of our Savior, fresh cleansing from sin, fresh restoration to your favor. Give us what Adam and Eve could have had. at the asking. Give it to us, we pray. The last one of us here. We ask you, in all sincerity, that desire for forgiveness that is your own gift in us. Hear and heed our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.